Welcome to One Health Wednesdays. This podcast aims to promote the principles of One Health and encourage professional development. Here's your host, Ginger Dixon. Hello, everyone. Welcome to One Health Wednesdays, a collaboration between LabOp Global and One Life Epi Solutions. I'm Ginger Dixon, and I'd like to introduce our guest today, Laura Kahn. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. So you are a woman of, of many hats. You're a physician, author, researcher, educator, policy researcher, and then also a co-founder of One Health Initiative. Do you want to talk to us about your you know, your extensive background and how you got to this point in your career? Uh, sure. Um, how far back do you want to go? <laughs> Let's let's start from the beginning of the journey, and you tell us in however much detail you'd like. Okay. Well, uh, I, you know, my my initial interest was in veterinary medicine when I was growing up, but um, at the time there were only twenty two vet schools in the country, so um, getting in was extremely challenging. And um, I was interested in nursing because I thought it was kind of applied sociology, anthropology, psychology, and those were the prerequisites for nursing school. And that really appealed to me along with the uh, biological sciences. So I studied nursing at UCLA uh, and graduated with a bachelor's degree and worked for a couple of years as a nurse. Um, uh, My favorite rotation in nursing school was community public health. I really liked the, um, the broad population-based aspects of it. Um, So working as a nurse, I was uh, motivated and inspired to go to medical school. So I went and got all of the pre-med classes um, part-time while working and uh, got, went to medical school in New York at Mount Sinai and uh, went to medical school there, Um, did my um, internship and residency during the peak of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. And that was quite quite traumatic. I I can only imagine what the uh, interns and residents are going through with the COVID pandemic, but we were dealing with the AIDS pandemic and at that time, there was nothing really to offer them. And it was uh, traumatic to watch these young people die w- without being able to do anything. Um, so uh, I uh, decided to pursue uh, a fellowship in general medicine and public health. Uh, my goal was to go to the CDC and be an epidemic intelligence service officer. Uh, But um, unbeknownst to me, uh, they have this rule where you cannot be assigned within two years, uh, within two, you cannot be assigned within, um, uh, I believe 50 miles of where you live. And at the time I had a baby and uh, my husband could not relocate, so I uh, had to give up that uh, dream of being an EIS officer uh, because uh, I could not relocate. I, I could only 
um, have a, an assignment of near where I lived. So um, we were living in Princeton, New Jersey, and um, I was just about to start a master's in public policy program at the then called Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University when uh, this was fall of 2001, and we had the 9-11 and anthrax terrorist attacks within about a month of each other. Uh, and that changed the trajectory of my career. And I went into biodefense. Hmm. Um, for, for me, uh, the most important thing is who I'm working with. And one of my professors, uh, Professor Frank von Hibble, um, who's a nuclear physicist, although he has a, a nephew who's also named Frank von Hippel, who's based in, I believe, at the University of Arizona. Oh, okay. Um, so, but anyway, his namesake. But uh, anyway, uh, Professor von Hippel is one of these amazing human beings. I wanted to work with his group. He worked, he was the co-founder of the Program on Science and Global Security, uh, and he had physicists working on nuclear disarmament issues, and I wanted to work on biological issues, biodefense, public health policy. So uh, I joined his group, and for the next uh, almost 18 years, so, uh, I um, did policy research on biodefense. And during the course of my policy research, very early on, um, reading the veterinary medical literature, it was striking to me that um, a lot of the agents of bioterrorism happen to be zoonotic and that there's this overlap between emerging infectious diseases, which are mostly zoonotic, and bioterrorist agents, which are mostly zoonotic. Zoonotic meaning that they're diseases of animals that infect humans. And yet in my policy research, looking at state health and agriculture, physicians and veterinarians, I discovered that they rarely communicated or collaborated with each other. So that was a, a, that was a problem because these biological agents don't necessarily see a distinction between us and the other animals, but yet we had these dividing lines these silos that we've created over the years. So I wrote up my findings in the CDC journal, Emerging Infectious Diseases. This was back in April 2006. Um, that was published, Confronting Zoonoses, Linking Human and Veterinary Medicine. And I got a huge response from the veterinarians, and I heard crickets from the physicians. <laughs> Um, one of the veterinarians, Dr. Bruce Kaplan, was a retired uh, EIS officer, as it turned out. Uh, and he said, that's been my whole career. I was, you know, working on zoonotic diseases, trying to get the physicians interested. <laughs> and uh, so we joined forces and, uh, you know, uh, worked together to try to spread this word that physicians and veterinarians need to work together to um, address zoonotic diseases. And I met Dr. Tom Monath, who's a distinguished physician virologist at an American Society of Microbiology meeting about a year later. 
Uh, he joined our group and it was his brainchild to start the website. And, uh, you know, with, with time, um, you know, this, this concept was increasingly embraced. Uh, it wasn't just us. There were other groups. There was groups in Europe. Uh, there was uh, the wildlife group. They had, there was a uh, One World One Health Conference um, in, I believe, 2004, 2005, where they had a meeting at the Rockefeller University in Manhattan. They developed these Manhattan principles. I, I actually was not aware of that at the time. But they also emphasize the importance of addressing zoonotic diseases and how environmental and ecosystem destruction was contributing to their emergence into human populations. So there was a number of groups. Um, this concept of One Health was building organically over time. And, um, uh, and, it, and it's been amazing to watch since then how it has evolved and been embraced globally. Um, so that's kind of uh, kind of where we're at today in 2022 as we as we continue to um, deal with this uh, zoonotic pandemic of COVID-19. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I you had mentioned, you know, kind of the struggle of getting physicians uh, on board and interested in these one health concepts, um, mm. probably at least at first, what successes and failures did you have, you know, in that process of reaching out and communicating and, and trying to bring more disciplines into, into one health? You know, it's really individual driven. Um, like I said, the veterinary profession has largely been driving this one health concept, but there have been other physicians, um, notably Dr. Peter Rabinowitz at the University of Washington, uh, has a One Health Institute there. Um, Dr. Greg Gray, who I believe is now at Houston, um, he's got a One Health uh, program there. Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz, who's a cardiologist and a psychiatrist at UCLA, um, she became very interested in the connection of uh, the overlap of chronic diseases, uh, that disease processes across species are shared. And um, she wrote a book called Zubiquity with a journalist. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, so she came at it from a different perspective, from the uh, chronic disease perspective. So uh, it's been quite interesting how One Health has, I mean, I come to it from the infectious disease, zoonotic disease viewpoint, but there's also the chronic disease, the human-animal bond, the mental health. Um, there's so many ways to approach it um, that it's, it's really quite amazing how um, different, uh, you know, different groups bring to it their own um, you know, their own area of expertise. That is interesting. And, you know, I just saw that book at the library the other day. <laughs> so uh -huh. yeah, I, uh, I know which one you're talking about. It is, it's a really interesting read. Mm -hmm. Well, so you told us a little bit about, you know, this process of building One Health Initiative over the years. 
where are there any challenges in that process that you might provide you know advice on for people overcoming or um, any challenges in the future that you're looking to overcome in that process? Well, you know, we've built up these silos for over a century. Um, in the late 19th century, there was actually a lot of overlap between medicine, public health, veterinary medicine. Um, physicians and veterinarians used to take classes together. Uh, and, and when you take classes together, you get to know each other. Mm -hmm. um, physicians were much more involved in public health. And, and during the 20th century, silos started to be built up. Um, the Rockefeller Foundation, for example, established schools of public health, which, while it had its benefits, it kind of divorced medicine from public health. And public health became kind of the Cinderella, and medicine and the whole medical industrial complex really started. Um, growing and uh, to the point now where we're devoting much of our resources on treatment, on tertiary care treatment rather than on disease prevention. So we don't have a healthcare system, we have a disease care system. Um, if we had a healthcare system, we would be devoting a lot more resources to ensuring that we had uh, clean air, clean water, um, uh, unpolluted soils, and, uh, you know, healthy foods, we, we, would, and we, we would be spending a lot more time and energy promoting that rather than just waiting for, you know, illness to take over and, and focusing on that. Um, so we have a disease care system, not a health care system. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, so because we have a disease care system and the whole focus of One Health is disease prevention, trying to change the system as it has evolved over a century is not easy to do. And, uh, you know, I you, ha you have to take the long view. I mean, it took a century for basic sanitation to get accepted. Um, I think what we are doing now is planting seeds of One Health, and we're going to have to just completely change our orientation um, to become a healthcare system, a healthier society. And that necessitates a change in our priorities, our funding streams, and we have to break down these silos. Um, you know, I think it was Hippocrates said, you, you know, you, Food is thy medicine, thy medicine is thy food. And, and that is extremely true. That was true 2,000 years ago. It's true now. But yet we don't really talk about how what we eat is so important, what we put in our bodies. I mean, we have to realize that we interact with our environment every single day. We breathe in the air, we drink the fluids, and we literally eat plants and animals. So we incorporate the environment into our bodies every single day. But we don't think about it that way. We just think, oh, yeah, I'm breathing. You know, we don't even think about breathing. <laughs> but if your air is polluted, 
you're breathing that into your body. If you're smoking, you're breathing in all the, you know, the tars and the nicotines and all the other garbage that, you know, you're bringing into your lungs. Um, if, if your water is uh, contaminated, you're drinking that in. If there's lead in it, for example, and we have it, we have cases of that. Um, so we, we really need to be spending, paying more attention to, to our environment, to our dying ecosystems. Uh, if we want to have healthy, healthy people, healthy animals, healthy environments and ecosystems. Yeah. And I, I like, I appreciate the work that that you're doing in, in food security as well and bringing more awareness to those concepts of, you know, of, of how important that is. I think sometimes, um, you know, especially here in the United States where food is, is readily available and you say, you know, food security that, that people kind of go, well, we don't have a food security problem, but we have a, you know, we do that. We have a food, um, quality issue because of the environmental issues and, and uh, if I remember right, I think that you were speaking about some of the the future implications, you know, that that might have on on the availability of food in the future. And um, I'd love to hear yeah. more about that work. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, food security is the availability of food, which we've taken for granted for for many years. I mean. Um, much of the world, there's still a lot of hungry people. And even in the U.S., there's a lot of hungry people. We don't talk about them, but, you know, the, the food lines were quite long um, during the pandemic when people lost their jobs, uh, during the recession of 2008, uh, lots of long food lines. I, I think people don't realize that the foundation of civilization, everything that we take for granted, is, is based on agriculture and a supply of food. Without, without agriculture and our stable supply of food, everything that we take for granted comes collapsing down. And, uh, you know, we spend all our time looking for food to stay alive. Now, uh, unfortunately, um, climate change threatens agriculture and agriculture worsens climate change. Now, you know, we talk about climate change, but what exactly does that mean? Well, to understand that, you have to look at the timeline of the geologic time. We have to think like a geologist. You have to look at the geologic timeline at the temperature of the planet. And yes, the planet was very hot millions of years ago, but the land was barren. Uh, there was life in the seas. And over time, the planet began to cool until you get to the Pleistocene, where you start entering the uh, Ice Age, where much of the planet was covered in thick layers of ice. And humanity barely held on then because there wasn't much food and there weren't that many people. But inexplicably, about 10,000 years ago, and this is very important, 10,000 years ago, the planet began to warm. And it's not a coincidence that 10,000 years ago is when agriculture developed because the climate of the planet allowed it. 
Now, for the past 10,000 years, which is what is so striking in this whole era, the past 10,000 years is called the Holocene era. That's the era that we live in now. The, the temperature of the planet has been remarkably stable and has been on this baseline called the Holocene baseline that has allowed agriculture and civilization to exist. You know, the farmers needed to be able to know when to plant. You plant in the spring. The nice, generally mild weather would allow the crops to grow and you harvest in the fall uh, and you store the food over the winter. That's how we survived. Um, there were, whenever there were deviations off this baseline, for example, the Little Ice Age during the um, 13 to 1800s or so, there was a deviation about a degree below uh, and horrible weather destroyed crops, little ice age, mini ice age was known for crop failures, famine and wars. And, you know, at the time, somebody had to be blamed for the bad weather. And usually it was poor elderly women were being accused of being witches and this one book called Nature's Mutiny by Philippe Blom found a correlation between witch burning and uh, crop failures from bad weather. Uh, so they, they would blame poor elderly women for cavorting with the devil and causing crop failures. Well, uh, you know, we are about one degree now above the Holocene baseline, and we are seeing the effects of climate change. And um, unfortunately, we are on track of the temperature going much higher, uh, unless we can greatly curtail our, our greenhouse gas emissions, carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. Um, agriculture, particularly animal agriculture, produces the largest fraction of methane and nitrous oxides, which are extremely potent at trapping heat in the atmosphere. So you get uh, you know, the greater warming as a result. And methane comes from cow burps. They're about, contribute about a quarter of the methane produced in the US, cow burps. And nitrous oxide, almost 80% of our nitrous oxide is coming from agricultural soils using, um, using high nitrogen fertilizers uh, for that. And when you till the soil, you release these, this nitrous oxide, which is about 365 times more potent than carbon dioxide trapping heat major, major greenhouse gases. And, and I think people don't realize that, you know, a warming planet is much more than just rising sea levels. It means a, a collapse of our food supply and a collapse of civilization. So we really don't want to leave our kids an uninhabitable planet. I, for one, will do everything in my power to spread the word. And we need to all work together to try to curtail you know, our greenhouse gases so that we can ensure our kids have, have a sustainable future. Um, so it's, you know, I, I can't tell you how important it is. So climate change then means change from the Holocene baseline that has allowed agriculture and civilization to exist.
I really appreciate, uh, especially how knowledgeable you are about, you know, this anthropology and history and, and really speaking to what climate change really is and the implications. Um, and we certainly appreciate your passion and dedication in, in affecting this, you know, we don't want that, that future outcome. Um, I think another time I would, I would love to delve in with you on, you know, the contributions from nitrous oxides and methane versus the contribution from carbon dioxide. A lot of the focus that I've seen recently on uh, preventing progression of climate change has been on reducing carbon dioxide from the air. Right. Sounds like, you know, there are other interventions that we need to be placing a high focus on as well. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, we, we need to do everything we can because this really is a crisis that is not getting the attention it deserves. I mean, we all need to be on board and working together. And, and instead, we've been our, our country has never been more divided. And it's just really tragic, you know, to, to see this all unfold and think about the implications for our kids and for our future generations that we are, we have this opportunity to try to turn this around for them and we're squandering it. It's, it's, it, it's really heartbreaking. It is. It is, you know, especially as a mother myself, that's part of why I started this work yeah. in one health, you know, is to ensure that my kids have a healthy, healthier future, you know, than, than what we're seeing right now. And so. Yeah, absolutely. That's what one health is all about. It's about a healthy future, a healthy now and a healthy future. Yeah, absolutely. And I love, <laughs> I love your, your phrases. They're, they're very on point. <laughs> um, and I, I want to shift gears just a little bit to bring up, we were discussing a book that, that you have written about One Health and the politics of antimicrobial resistance. Right. And I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, that book and because um, that works with food safety as well, among, among other issues. Right. Uh, thanks for asking about that. Yeah. So um, my colleagues, I had a colleague um, at Texas Tech University who was um, um, corresponding with my One Health colleagues and myself, and, and he was saying that uh, the, there was a blame game going on between physicians and veterinarians as to who was more to blame for the rise of antimicrobial resistance. The physicians would point fingers at the veterinarians, and the veterinarians would point fingers at the physicians. And, you know, this was news to me. And so I um, decided to investigate and uh, spent five years actually looking at all the data, um, studying this issue. And well, it's everybody's to blame and no one's to blame. <laughs> um, and because it's, you know, it's a much more complicated issues than, um, than, I, than I had imagined. And, and that's because uh, it, antimicrobial resistance is ancient and it's everywhere, it's in the environment. And to, to fully understand it, um, so uh, most of our antibiotics came from soil microbes and um, 
but it's very hard to grow soil microbes in the laboratory. So we really don't know what's going on below the surface of the soil. So scientists came up with a really strategic, clever idea of just taking some soil and extracting the DNA from it and looking to see what's there. Uh, and when they did that, they were stunned to discover all these antimicrobial resistance genes. Uh, and they did this all around the world. They did it in the Arctic. They did it in the Antarctic. They did it in places that never saw any human you know, antibiotic use. And yet these resistance genes were everywhere. So what was going on? Well, for a long time, and, and this is just quite telling about humans, for a long time, people thought that bacteria used uh, their the antibiotics as a form of chemical warfare against each other. And you know, we always think everybody else is doing, you know, we're, we're waging war against each other. We think everybody else is waging war too. But that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be that the microbes use very tiny amounts of antibiotics to communicate with each other. So, it's a, you know, we talk through sound and they talk through chemicals. And these chemicals were minute amounts of anti, antimicrobials. Uh, and so they have these resistance genes to protect themselves if they get exposed to too much. I mean, that makes sense. Um, you know, we get earplugs if <laughs> the noise gets too loud. Um, and so when we stumbled upon antibiotics, which was a boondoggle for us, you know, we start, you know, using it in humans and livestock, on crops. I mean, we're blasting the environment with these chemicals, with these antibiotics. Well, it wasn't so good for the microbes because, I mean, just imagine trying to talk with each other if you're standing next to a revving jet engine. You know, I mean, I'm talking to you in a moderated tone. I'm not yelling at you. But if we had a revving jet engine right next to each in you know, ourselves, <laughs> communicating would not only be impossible, but it could even kill us if the, you know, if the engine was loud enough. It could puncture our eardrums. It, it could do all sorts of damage. Well, so the bacteria are very nicely sharing resistance genes with each other to protect themselves against our onslaught of antibiotic use in humans and animals in the environment. I mean, they are very nicely, co you know, collaborating with each other. <laughs> They're practicing one now. We're not. <laughs> you know, so um, that was really a revelation. So, yes, you know, the physicians are to blame, the veterinarians are to blame, you know, they're using tons of antibiotics on crops. You know, all of this is contributing to the bacteria sharing resistance genes with each other to protect themselves against us. Uh, and guess what? They're going to win. There's a lot more of them. They're much more able to share their resistance genes than we are to come up with new antibiotics. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, a losing battle, if you will. Now, I, I kind of think of this as, um, you know, in some ways it's kind of like we're battling nature, the, the same way we are in a way with, with uh, burning fossil fuels, or, you know, damaging nature. And uh, in order to, um, 
to really effectively address it, we need to work with nature, not against it. If we really want a sustainable future, we really have to respect our planet and we need to respect nature. Now, if you look at, well, who's the, you know, who's the natural foe to bacteria? Well, it turns out there's these tiny little viruses called bacteriophages that, um, that are the natural foe to bacteria. They are the most prevalent bioform on the planet. They're, they're all around us. They're on us. They're in us. They're raining down from the sky. They're everywhere. Um, there are some challenges to using them, and you know, it's a very lengthy discussion on just bacteriophages, but they could serve as a very important uh, adjunct or alternative to antibiotics, but they would need to be um, in some ways genetically modified. The, the, the challenge with them is they're very specific. You know, there's only certain phages against certain bacteria. So you have to have very accurate diagnostics to know exactly what you're treating. And that has its pluses and minuses because you know, our diagnostics aren't very good. And doctors just do their best guess and they give you a broad spectrum antibiotic and hope for the best. You know, hope that whatever they prescribe is going to cover what's ailing you. But if that's not the case, then you know, you're, you're uh, you know, back at square one. Uh, the other problem with antibiotics, of course, is that you're killing off the good bacteria with the bad. And one thing that we've learned with time is that uh, the microbes that are on us and in us are as important for our health and well-being as any of our organs or any of our human cells. Um, so if you're inadvertently killing off the good, um, you're going to make people sick. And, and we are indeed seeing that. There's actually a really excellent book called The Missing Microbes by Martin Blazer that I highly recommend for people who are interested in what antibiotics have done, um, you know, the unintended consequences of, uh, of antibi widespread antibiotic use. But anyway, so there's a lot of potential with bacteriophages, but there's a lot of challenges. I kind of think of it as green, green energy. Um, you know, it took decades for us to develop uh, economically viable alternatives to fossil fuels with solar and wind power. But, you know, we're, we're getting there. We've gotten there. And I think we can do the same with phage therapy as well. Uh, it will take a lot of effort, but I think in the long run, it will be a lot more sustainable than our present reliance on antibiotics, which is essentially working against nature. Yeah. And I'd, I'd love to have you back on, you know, to talk more about, about your work and, and, you know, options for phage therapy and mm -hmm. some of these other unintended consequences of, of, uh, affecting the microbes, you know, in our bodies. And like you mm -hmm. talked about, you know, with gut health and microbes on our hands and <laughs> all of those things, yeah. that'd be excellent. Sure. I'd be, I'd be happy to. Yeah. And I, I uh, want to take a moment here to ask if you have any advice for uh, students in the field or early career professionals, people maybe wanting to transition into One Health that, that you might give them from your experience. Sure. Well, I, I think in our society, there's a strong 
push to specialize. Um, and uh, that has its pluses and minuses uh, because we have so many people who have become so specialized that we can't see the forest for the trees. And uh, you know, with One Health, we really need to have the, the big picture in mind. And so we need generalists too. Uh, so I think for people working in One Health, you need to have a broad perspective because One Health is inherently multidisciplinary uh, and requires broad societal-wide thinking. Uh, you know, thinking about the planet, uh, very different, a very different way of approaching health and disease, health and wellness. So that would be my advice is to try to resist the tendency to become ever more specialized. One Health, and I think the future of, uh, of our societies, we, we need people to think broadly and to see connections that might not be obvious to others. That's excellent advice. And I've seen, you know, as you talked about with that, that push to specialize, uh, even in higher education as people pursue, you know, degrees, then you kind of, it's always mm -hmm. this push to find a focus, you know, or a niche in your research or your, your focus. And, um, that's excellent advice to, to consider keeping that generalist mindset so we can have those interdisciplinary teams and, and have people like yourself that have a broad background and can speak to so many different aspects of what's going on. Well, thank you. I, um, I, I've greatly enjoyed my career and, um, you know, it's, it's been not, it's been hard resisting the call to specialize, but you know, there was no one organ system that I liked better than another organ system. And I found that I liked thinking about the big picture. So I, I just kind of gravitated away from specialization and towards uh, a broad, a broad based approach to, uh, to health. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can empathize with that <laughs> myself. Um, and I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing you know, your knowledge and experience and talking about the work that's going on in One Health and, and what needs and challenges there are. And you've I, mentioned, oh, I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, uh, my, my pleasure. I'm ha happy to speak with you. Uh, I'm sorry, what was your question? Yeah, no, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, We'd like to give you a moment here if there's anyone that you'd like to thank that's helped you along the way. I know you've mentioned several names already. That right. Well, you know, Frank Von Hippel really was my mentor. He he's, continues to serve as a, as a mentor. Uh, like I said, he's an amazing human being. Um, Bruce Kaplan, my my colleague, uh, veterinarian, Dr. Tom Monat, uh, physician virologist extraordinaire. Uh, the late Lisa Conti, who was part of our uh, One Health initiative, uh, as well as uh, the late Jack Woodall, who was also part of our initial One Health initiative. Uh, and, and just recognize uh, the others on our um, One Health initiative team, um, Dr. Tom Ewall, um, Dr. Craig Carter, Dr. Helena Chapman, uh, Becky Barantine. Um, we all work together to um, to help spread the, the word of, about One Health. So um, 
So I, I'd just like to acknowledge all of them. Thank you. Thank you for taking that time. And we um, can we appreciate you coming on and, and talking with us and sharing with our audience. And we wish you luck on your One Health adventure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. To support the mission of One Health Wednesdays, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify and remember to leave a rating and review. You can find us on all social media channels and at onehealthwednesdays.com.